Um, but we are looking at Song of Solomon a little different than normally people look at Song of Solomon. Uh, I've always been taught that it's Solomon who's the lover. But as we studied this as teaching team, as we did research, there is a lot of evidence to tell us that this is actually the triangle kind of way of looking at it. That there's a power contract between Solomon and one of his many, many women, thousand concubines, 300 wives. And then there's the woman that, and she loves this man. And so we're looking at it in a way of there's a covenant love between the woman and the man. And then there's the contract love of power over control between Solomon and this woman. And so we're looking at it from different ways. And today uh, we're going to look at chapter 4, which is probably the most erotic chapter in the book. Uh, chapter 6 and 7 come in close second. Uh, but pray with me and then we'll look at it. Lord, we thank you uh, for love stories. Uh, both the movies that we see in our culture and the books that we have, uh, they remind us and they point us to your perfect love for us. And God, we thank you for the love story that we see in Song of Solomon, right in the heart of Scripture. Uh, Lord, we see a perfect picture of love, a love that casts out fear. We thank you for this. Lord, would you open our eyes to the truth that your Scripture bring us. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we have air conditioning in this building. It's called Eight Windows and a Breeze. Uh, we have ordered fans, so when it gets real hot in July, uh, we'll have them, so you won't see me sweat too bad. And I, I can sweat real good, uh, and so we'll hope to keep that at a minimum. Uh, when you look through church history, there's, this, there's three habits that the church has, and it begins back in, in fact, Jesus' time, before Jesus happened. There were three ways that the church engaged culture, and neither of them were really healthy. The first way is to completely separate from culture, to disengage, to go completely up the river, up the Jordan River, as one group of people do, and as many groups throughout history has done, and make their own culture separate from culture. You have your own books, you have your own readings, you have your own bookstores, you have your own radio stations, you have your own testaments. Everything that you have is taken outside of culture. And so you've completely disengaged from culture. And it feeds into this idea that you're influencing culture because everyone around you agrees with you. And it's sort of like Facebook. You only hear what you expose yourself to hearing. And so this is one way that the church, who used to be able to sway and speak into culture, has removed itself from culture by disengaging culture. The other way that the church and Christianity and many people before that have dealt with culture is to stand up with a holier-than-thou attitude. Some Christians have taken this to the extreme of holding protest signs at concerts. We slap labels on things. We stop reading certain things. We call things bad, some things good, and some things absolutely abhorrent, and we avoid them. We protest youth sporting events, and we, we say that this is no good, and so we start finger-pointing with megaphones as if this is supposed to spread the love of Christ. We call this uh, separating, or we call this uh, uh, escalating what the culture is doing. And so we yell at them, thinking that this will invite them to places. The other way that we've dealt with culture is in some cases we've adapted. In first century times, you see this with the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They are so 
they don't know what to do with the culture of Rome and Greece that had come before then. And, and so now what you see them doing is just adapting the popular view of culture. And so they lose the teachings that they had in the Hebrew scriptures. And we do it in our culture. Our sense of ethics, our sense of the way that we're supposed to live goes out the drain because we adapt to the culture because we don't want to cause too many waves. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to tell people that they might be wrong in some areas. We, we disengage and we just say, it's cool, just do your thing. And then what happens is our own ethics and the way that Christ has called us to live goes down the drain as well. All of these ways of engaging culture, those three ways, and there are many more if we want to get into it, but those three main ways are completely unacceptable. They separate you from culture or they separate you from the teachings that we appear, uh, hold to when you're a Christian, when you follow Christ. None of them really work. And as we look at Song of Solomon, we're confronted with love, we're confronted with sex, and what it shows is that the church blushes at it. We giggle when we read some, or at least I do. Uh, you giggle when you read some of these verses. You get a little bit uncomfortable when you hear verse 16 read. Because we all know what it's talking about. We've separated from these things in Song of Solomon. And what we've seen is that culture, without the truth spoken into it, starts to interpret what God has created as good and holy, and tries to interpret it to mean what it means for them itself, and they take it away from God's original intent. And so today, the hope is to look at this very erotic chapter, and not look at it in a way that we all get uncomfortable, because we all will, but in a way that we look and see the beauty of this, and how the church can speak into this. There are three, now we did three words a few weeks ago, there are three words that come out of this that we need to look at. The first one is eros. The second one is affirmation. And the last one is invitation. A couple weeks ago, we looked at the verses, the words for love in Song of Solomon. There was raya, which was the friend zone. That was when you were, it is just a common decency between you and another person. It's the foundation of any relationship. It's seeking the common good. It's wanting the best for this other person. And then on top of that, remember the triangle if you were here, is ahava. Ahava is the commitment. It's the long-lasting love. This is the covenant relationship between friends, between spouses. This is the one that says, I'm not going to leave you. I'll be by your side. There's pictures of ahava with spouses in the scriptures. There's pictures of ahava between friends in the scriptures. It's a commitment to one another. Then there's the word dode which if you take dode and fast forward a couple hundred years, you have the Greek word eros. And if you take eros and bring it up forward a couple thousand years, you have our word erotic. Now, I'll do a poll. You guys can talk back to me. Where do you see the word erotic today? Highway 99? Yep. Where else? Porn? Yep. Strip joints? Just here on 15th, there's a couple. Erotic dancing. Where else? Advertising. We see it in our culture, but what is it tied to? It's always tied to something that we think is a little bad, right? Sex. We blush at sex. 
we avoid sex. It's tied to some places, bookstores on 99, the, the video stores up north or down south. It's always tied to places where we think as Christians are totally bad, and they are in the current state of it. But what they're selling didn't always start as bad. Eros, as we see it in the Song of Solomon, erotic, eroticism, as we see it throughout scriptures, didn't start bad. It started in the Garden of Eden, and it started like we all started, as good. And then something happened somewhere along the line. The church lost its voice on this very good thing that God created. And there was two ways to look at eros now in our world. You have an animalistic type way, and then you have an angelic type way. The animalistic way. Think of Daytona Beach, spring break, college students, right? We've all seen the ads. Maybe you've gone there. Uh, we we're not going to have you raise your hand for that one. But think of this. It's those places where people go to lose control, right? All rules are completely off the table. There's a city in America that has that one phrase, what happens here stays here. We know of these places, yeah? It's this idea that whatever your urge is, whatever you're feeling or thinking at that time, this is the place where you go just to fill your stomach or whatever you're craving with whatever feeling comes along the way. It's the phrase, if it feels good, you might as well do it because it feels good. There's no consequence to it. And they've taken this God-given thing that is good and taken it to the complete animalistic side of the view and says, if it's, if it's in you, you might as well capitalize on it. They've turned it into this selfish urge about filling your desire and it has no regard for you as a person and it has no regard for the other person as a person. In the Greek world or in the New Testament world, there was a city called Corinth. And Corinth is said to be like the Vegas of that time. Uh, where they would have this phrase that they just want to go Corinthianize. Which means live however the heck you want to live. Do whatever you want to do. Fulfill whatever urge you have. In Corinth. Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians. There was this phrase that they used. They had a very animalistic view of humanness. They had a phrase that said food for the stomach or stomach for the food. And so you would just fulfill your urges because if you're hungry, there's a buffet somewhere, right? Just go eat your fill. When you get too full, throw up, eat some more. They would take this to sleep whenever you're tired, you have sleep. So it was an urge. It was a need. Sleep. And then food for the stomach, they had the same view of sex. If you have the urge, if you're in the mood, it doesn't matter. Just go fulfill your urges. In fact, the, they would pull up to a prostitute and say food for the stomach. Weirdest pickup line ever. But this was their cue that they have an urge and they need to fulfill this urge. This is the animalistic way of looking at it. It's understood in that way. And Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians. He says, and he confronts it with a challenge. He asks, can they live for a higher purpose than just fulfilling their urges? 
He claims that their bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in them, whom they've received for God. And in that culture, it's a very provocative thing that Paul is saying. He said the temple was a place where God's lived. And your body is a place where Yahweh lives. A place where heaven and earth met. And he's challenging them with an idea that humans aren't just made for their urges. They're, co- they're not a collection of urges and needs, but a place where God resides. So these urges that they're given are actually placed there by God. And what we do with them matters. The stomach as a view, the stomach for food view of Eros dominates the world even today. And the problem is that it's, it's built on this low view of human nature, assuming that people are going to have sex simply because they can't help themselves. It's viewed as a way of freedom. We have the sexual revolution where we can have sex whenever, with whoever, and at any time we want. It's, it's viewed as a way of honesty. It's, some people say it's just being who you are. And you, if you don't, then you're repressing who you actually are. And it's what comes natural. And it's built on this idea that everything is inevitable. That why try to avoid the natural way things go? But the problem is this. When you look at sex, when you look at eros, and you separate it from God's intent, you end up with things like porn. You end up with Highway 99 stores. You end up with sexual abuse. You end up with marriages that have everything that marriages are supposed to have. They have the the paper that's signed by the right people. You have the rings. Maybe you have the cake in the freezer still. Who does that? I don't know who still does that. They have the places where both, but they have everything that they have to make a marriage a marriage. But inside, both parties are feeling ignored. They feel used, they feel devalued, or they have a combination of all three. And what happens is it creates a highly sexualized world, but we're desperate for true love. True erotic love, which God talks about in Song of Solomon, is in short supply. Sexual activity is not in itself intimacy, and in fact can actually express the opposite. Now you have the animalistic side that says just act on your urges. And then you have the other side that says we're angels. We don't do that. And so you have a church that completely disengages from the conversation. We all know that sex happens. We dedicated a baby. We get it. It is happening amongst us. But we don't talk about it. We ignore it. We let it go on and we never speak truth to it. We blush when it's talked about in a church. We become uncomfortable with it. Some of you are uncomfortable right now. We become uncomfortable about the topic and because we never talk about it, we we have basically built a culture that doesn't know what it looks like to have a healthy sex life. And we don't want to talk about it anymore. Ignoring the subject is basically what we're doing And that never really addresses anything at all. When we find it, uh, my son is 18 months old, and he has this thing, and he found the power button on the television, and he turns it off at the worst times, uh, like overtime in a hockey game and playoffs. You just don't do that. And he turns it off, and then he looks at us with this grin, like, did you see what I did? And so we've established that that is a no. 
And so he'll walk up and he stands on his little, he has a fox chair, Freddie the Fox. And he stands on it and he looks at us and he finds the button and he hits it. And then we say, Judah, that's a no. And the punishment for Judah is to go into his room where it's dark and he sits there for two minutes all alone and he screams as loud as he can because he hates it. It seems fitting, right? I would actually like that. Two minutes by myself in the dark, I'll take a nap. And, and so he goes in there and he sits by himself. Well, Judah started to do this one thing. You tell him no and we walk over to pick him up. And what's he do? He goes like this. He closes his eyes. If I can't see you, you can't see me. We've done that with sex in the church. We've absolutely ignored it, thinking that if it goes away, that if we don't talk about it, then we're going to be fine with it. We get angry when other people start talking about it, but someone has to. And if someone's going to talk about it, why shouldn't it be Christians? Why shouldn't it be those who have a relationship with the God who created it? We can't ignore it anymore. Our culture needs us to have a healthy view of sex, both for married people and for single people. A healthy view of Eros. So, as we look at Song of Solomon, Eros is not avoided. In fact, it's, bright, it's right in the middle of everything that you, you read of in Song of Solomon. It's not shamed. It's celebrated. It's the focus Eros, in its pure form, as we look in Song of Solomon, isn't just about sex. It's not wanting sex. It's Eros, in its purest form, is about wanting the person and not necessarily the sexual gratification that we get from the person. We have gone a long way from the intent of sex in scriptures. We have equivalented equaled sex to a feeling that you get with your clothes off instead of what it was actually meant to do. Look in verse 9 with me uh, at, at, in Song of Solomon 4. Listen to how he talks to her. You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. That's a way of saying we're equals in this. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace, how delightful is your love. The word love there is, is dod, eros, my sister, my bride. It is more pleasing. You're, how much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice? You've stolen my heart. This is not just a piece of him. This is his whole entire personhood. You've stolen my heart as a co-equal. It's not someone who he has power over. This is an equal relationship. You've stolen my heart in your God-given uniqueness. This is said within covenant. It's said within a marriage covenant. He calls her his bride, and she's so unique that nothing can compare with her. And he wants, an ex he, he's, he, he wants to experience her not just have an experience with her. He doesn't want a single experience or a one-night stand. He wants the desire for this whole person, body, soul, and spirit. In fact, when we'll look back at the way he compliments her, at the way he speaks to her, he's talking about her whole person, not just what he can get from her. 
in 1 Timothy, Paul is talking about things that God has created good, that the culture has made bad, and therefore the church has separated from. And he uses food as an illustration, but we can use that food illustration even to talk about how he talks about sex. Paul makes a point about this. He makes a distinction between the inherent good of something versus the abuse of it. People have distorted this view of sex that Paul's talking to in Ephesus, and it's led to a destructive living. But it doesn't mean that food and sex are bad. He says, for if everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. So here in Song of Solomon, we see something that is good and it is celebrated. And he says, your love is better than wine. It's not just sex. The word love here is an all-encompassing of the person he's with. He is after this whole person, not just below the waist. And then finally, he says in, in, in chapter 5, verse 1, there's an invitation to con- consummate this marriage. It's the entire person that's involved in it. It's within a covenant relation, two people in covenant relationships with each other, not acting like animals, not acting like angels, but actually partaking in something that was good. And as we see in a healthy view of Eros, there are two words that come out of it. When you have a healthy view of Eros, you have affirmation. Affirmation is something else that has been lost in our culture. We don't affirm very well, especially when it comes to sex. We get what we want, and then we discard the person. That's what our culture does. But here, affirmation has a way of pushing back some of the hurts and wounds that we have had and that our culture do to us. Affirmation has a way of pushing back the animalistic chaos that we see all around us. And it enables us to, to live in a healthy view of sexuality because we're affirmed as a person as the way God has created us. In the text... If you look back at chapter 3 last week, you see a woman who has been abused. You see a woman who has been isolated. You see a woman that is just an object. She has been taken apart. Solomon has just used her for whatever he wants. Uh, She doesn't like it. We've told ourselves in in a traditional reading of this text that she actually likes Solomon but she, she likens him to smoke on the horizon and desolation. It doesn't sound like enjoyable things. When she talks about this man, it's always something giving life that's nutritious. So Solomon has abused this woman, yet this man comes along in a covenant relationship and listen to how he talks about her. How beautiful you are, my darling. Contrast it to what Solomon says. You're just here. I'm an animal. I have this urge. This is what I'm going to do. Here, how beautiful you are. He notices her eyes are like doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from the hills of Gilead. Guys, try it. (laughs) Try using that one. Here's another one. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn coming up from the washing In other words, you have clean teeth. 
you've brushed them, maybe you've rinsed and flossed, you have good-looking teeth, then each of them has its twin, and none of them are alone, so you have all of them. (laughs) Perhaps the bar was a little low back then. You have all of your teeth. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. That's a good one. That one might work. Your neck is like a tower of David built with courses of stone and on it hangs shields, all the shields of the warriors. I tried that one. Carrie said, thank you. And then she said, I know. And so, but what this is telling this woman in that culture is your neck is strong and it's holding you up and it, it, it looks good. I like it. He's telling her how beautiful she is. And then in verse 7, this, this one is good, so write this one down. You're altogether, altogether beautiful, my darling. There is no flaw in you. He's telling this woman whom he loves that he is, she is everything that he wants. Not just after sex, but he's after this entire person. She is beautiful to him, all of her. The way she talks, the way she smiles, the way her eyes look, the way she does her hair, everything about her is something that he wants. It's a healthy view of erotic love. It's affirming the entire person, not just the sex of the person. True eros contains affirmation, whether in our ordinary relationships or in our marriages. Affirmation is the way we speak about people to attribute their unique worth and beauty that we all have. It's itself a way of of bringing healing to a world that constantly tells us you're not good enough, you don't look good enough, you don't have the right body type, you don't look like the magazines that are at the grocery store checkout. Affirmation is a way of combating what the world says and how the world brings worth to you. We in our culture have lost affirmation. We don't affirm people well. Many of us, if someone tries to affirm you and tells you how good you are, if you're like me, you get a little bit awkward with it. You think, well, I have to affirm them now too, right? Uh, You did a good job the other day. Thank you. You too. That's how we go about it. But affirmation here isn't awkward. Affirmation opens the door for healing to this woman that has been damaged, this woman that has been told that she needs to keep everything tightly bound up in this bottle. And and it opens her up and heals her from the chaos that has been going on all around them. We become terrified when we have affirming conversations. And in the context of those who are married or about to be married, where affirmation is avoided, then the sex life becomes silent. It becomes more and more awkward. It becomes just as a way of fulfilling a need and not fulfilling the deep emotional connection that we're all seeking. It doesn't meet the spiritual needs. It simply just satisfies our physical needs. When we don't affirm, we deprive ourselves and we deprive others of the words that might bring life and we miss out on the healing that they have in our life. In Song of Solomon, we see this woman who's been beat up, and this man who comes and affirms her 
and builds her up. I'm really bad at affirming words oftentimes. When Carrie was a social worker, she would get beat up at work. Social workers have a hard, hard job. And she'd get beat up. She'd have a, a supervisor that would just degrade her. She would have clients that wouldn't appreciate her hard work. And oftentimes, she'd come home just trashed from a hard day of helping people. She was completely empty. And I'm more a task kind of person. Uh, tonight, we'll have dinner. We'll do this. We'll do this. And then we'll go to bed. That's what we're going to do. Carrie would come home, and me being the guy who doesn't really pick up on things, she would just come in and collapse, and I would say, how was your day? And then, guys, we don't fix things, remember? We, 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 we listen. And so I remember this, don't try and fix, just listen. And so I sat there, and she told me all about it. And I go, okay, uh-huh. And I would let her keep talking, and then she'd get done, and I'd stay quiet for the, the 30, 45 seconds that we're told to. It was dumb of me. And then I'd say, you want tacos for dinner? <laughs> dumb move on my part. Women, go ahead and elbow your husband. What she needed in that scenario wasn't me to get to the next thing on the list. What she needed from me in that scenario was me to actually speak truth into her. That she wasn't as bad as her clients told her. That she's actually a really good therapist. That she's a good woman. That God has created her. That she is unique. Our world beats us up. And then we come to our friends. And then sometimes if, if your friends are this way, they don't always affirm you in a way that is healing. We need as a community as followers of Christ, to be able to speak truth into people's life, to affirm their worth, to tell them this is how you were created, that you were created good, that this is who you are. You're not what the world says about you, that you're not just a face in the crowd, that you have worth given from God, that you matter, that you're beautiful, that you're talented, that you're special. Some of us hear those words and we don't believe them about ourselves. So how can we ever tell somebody else that they're beautiful? Do you get uncomfortable? Mostly men. We get uncomfortable when you're called beautiful. You know that's how God calls you? Guys, you're beautiful too. And it's okay to say God has created you beautiful. We define ourselves by what the world says about us. God defined us as good, his prized creation. Before you were bad, you were good. And to affirm that in another person that has been beat up by the world, that's true love. That's what love looks like. That before anything, you are valuable. Are there people in your life that need affirming? Your friends, your coworkers, your children, the people around you right now, your spouse, maybe your boss. Hey, you're a good boss. You're a good supervisor. The people who you don't think need the affirmation might be the ones who need it the most. 
And shouldn't it come from somebody who actually knows how people were created? We should be the example of how to affirm people. Why don't we affirm people? Why are we uncomfortable with this? From Eros, you have a healthy view of sex. From Eros, you have an affirmation. And lastly, in Eros, there's an invitation. We have a culture that says, especially in marriage, in many marriages, it's a power struggle. It's, I will control this person. I will control the checking account. I will control what they do. I will control schedules. I will control everything. We want to control. We want to have power. But in Eros, there's not a control. In true love, is not controlling. And the true love that we get in Scripture is from God to us. That is the picture of love. That's what Jesus talks about. In that picture of love, there is not control. God doesn't control you. You have a choice on whether to love or not. Have we seen Bruce Almighty? Remember that movie? He comes, he's walking down the street, and there's signs everywhere that he loves this woman. But what does Morgan Freeman, who has the perfect voice of God, what does Morgan Freeman say? You can't force someone to love you. You can't force someone to be in love with you. The love, true love, is a choice. And here in Song of Solomon, we see this man waiting for her choice. He doesn't force himself on her. There's an invitation in this. There is a person deciding to invite the other person in. And it's one of the most striking features in Song of Solomon. Because of the picture of this woman and this man is true love, where there's no fear, where there's no control, where there's no shame. And then you have the picture of Solomon and this woman, where there's control, where there's fear, where there's shame. And in chapter 3, we're shown pictures of how Solomon has his way with anyone he wants. But with this man, there's a contrast. Someone who's affirming, someone who's desiring all of her, not just sex with her. And because of that, we see an invitation. In verse 16, he's gone through all the ways that he's affirmed her from head to belly button and then back up. And then he says, come away with me. Let me get you out of this situation you're in, which is full of danger. And let me get you to a place of safety. So there's safety, there's affirmation. And then she makes the invitation, awake north wind and come south wind. Blow on my garden and its fragrance will be everywhere. Let my beloved come into his garden and taste the choice fruits. We know what she's talking about, right? This is the love consummated in a covenant relationship. This is sex. This is healthy eros. In a marriage context, this is the recognition that each person has their own rights. And this, we see the man as accepted the relationship can only be good if it is mutual, if it's equally pursued, and each person has the passion and the choice to enter into it. He recognized his beloved as a person as regards to a woman who's equal, has her own choices, not someone to be lorded over, not someone to be controlled, that there's equal submission, not one always submitting to the other. And this is an enduring lesson for us. For those who are married, there's a common problem that we will settle down 
and will begin to take this other person for granted. That's the legal contract of marriage. Everything's signed, and then the wooing stops. The flirting stops. And what it leads to is this idea, or forgetting the idea, that this person you're with is a person that has a uniqueness, and that it's an enormous privilege to be married and spend life with them. We ignore boundaries. We, we, then we get hurt, and then we try to control, and then we take advantage, and then the marriage has lost its spark. The entire relationship becomes humdrum. It becomes predictable. It becomes just something that you do. There's no affirmation. There's no love. There's no invitation. Our culture has really gotten far away from this view of love. And it needs to be recovered. The only way we can recover it is not by separating ourselves from it. It's not by yelling at it. And it's not by adapting the way it works. The only way that we can recover it is sort of like the way we recover our phones when they break. The other day, I was on my phone, and I was texting Carrie something. She was at the store, and she wanted me wanted to know what I wanted for the week, and she was getting all the things. And I went to text her, and the phone went completely black. Any of you have had that happen? It just stops working. It's terrible because you feel instantly disconnected from everybody. You can't go on Facebook to see what people are eating or what they think of a, a, of a bill that was just passed in Congress. You, 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 you feel disconnected. I couldn't play my golf game, which was terrible. I love that golf game. My phone was broken. It wasn't working the way it was supposed to work. And so I tried all the tricks. I did the hard restart where you press the home button and one of the side buttons, and it just shuts down and then restarts on its own. It's the way of slapping the phone in the side of the face and saying, wake up. That didn't work. I, I, I tried, guys do this, come on, snap out of it. I tried the physical slap. That didn't work. What had to happen is I had to put my phone, I go online and say, what do I do now? And it said recovery mode. I was like, oh, great. This is when you realize you haven't backed up your phone in months. You're going to lose everything. But what recovery mode is, is you have to put it into the computer, plug it in, feels like we're going back to 1997, and restart your phone with your computer. What that does, in my limited understanding, those who are engineers can correct me afterwards. The computer tells the phone how it's supposed to act. It tells the phone that this is how you were created. These are the things that are out of line in you. And it reprograms the phone back to the way that Apple and Steve Jobs or Tim Cook told it to operate. And it does that by coming alongside of it, connected by a cable, and then when it's done, you open it up and everything works again. You feel connected. Our culture is in need of recovery mode, especially when it comes to this idea of sex. How is the best way that we do this? By entering alongside of it, by not separating, but by modeling what it is supposed to look like, married people and single people alike. In our relationships, those who aren't married, 
are you affirming with the people around you? They get beat up just as much as you do. Do you affirm them? In our marriages, do we display a love of a healthy sex life that is not just about the feeling or experience, but about everything that you have with this person, body, soul, and spirit? Or do we hide? Do we hide our true selves by not affirming who people are? Do we hide the idea that sex happens? Do we blush whenever it's talked about? Our culture is in desperate need of recovery. And the only way it's going to be recovered is if we show how God has intended it to be. And we model how it was, how it was intended to be. That's the only way that we should ever engage culture. Not by living up the river, not by yelling at it with a megaphone, and not by adapting its cultures. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that when you came to redeem us, you came to us and you lived among us. You put us in recovery mode by becoming human and walking in our shoes, experiencing what we experience feeling everything that we felt so that we can be in relationship with you. You recovered us. And God, as we look at this thing called sex that we're all afraid of, that we all blush at, that we're all confused by, Lord, may we redeem it. May we show this world what it was created for. Lord, may we affirm people the way that you've created them. Lord, may we invite people in. May we not try and control. And Lord, in this, may they see the way that your perfect love casts out the fear and chaos of the world surrounding us. Give us strength to do this by your spirit. And in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.